0: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com.
1: We
2: got a campfire. Sweet. Where's my beer?
1: I need my beer.
2: This is the sound of a gathering I hosted in my backyard. We had crackers, cheese, beers. Don't forget the kumquats. Producer Taylor Quimby brought kumquats. <laughs> They're so good. I feel like I should have a poker. <laughs> the purpose of the gathering was for Taylor to tell us a story. And he wanted an audience, or a peanut gallery, if you will, who you'll be hearing throughout.
3: Okay, uh, I'm Annie Ropeek, I'm a reporter at NHPR. This is Lauren Chulgin. I'm also a reporter at NHPR.
2: I'm Robert Garova, and I contributed the batteries. <laughs> You'll also hear outside-in producer Justine Paradise, who was wielding the microphones. And this is how the story began. So, Sam, I wanted to start by asking you a question, which is, do you know the story of Pheidippides? Pheidippides? Pheidippides. With an F. With a PH, actually. Not a real thing. Okay, no, so this is a real, this is a story, and it takes place in 490 BC, during the Greco-Persian Wars. 150,000 Persian soldiers have landed at the Bay of Marathon in Greece. 10,000 Athenians march out to meet them. Incredibly, the Athenians defeat the Persians against those terrible odds. It's an epic battle that's been written about in all the ancient histories. And afterwards, the Athenians send their legendary runner, Pheidippides, back home to let everybody know what happened. It's about 25 miles back to Athens. So Pheidippides, who just fought a horde of Persian soldiers, by the way, runs full tilt in all of his armor all the way through the mountains back to Athens. Then he bursts into the city and says, Victory! We have won! And then he collapses and dies. And that is the story of the first marathon. So I guess I had heard that story, but just not the crazy name. Now, the reason I told everybody this story, Sam, is because I love a good parable. You know, they, they're entertaining, of course, but they also teach us about ourselves. In this case, the, the story of the first marathon is this allegorical tale about endurance and about the human capacity, that, I think, to push past limits and achieve something that nobody thought possible. The thing is, most sports are so old that we either don't know their origins at all or they're sort of shrouded in myth and mystery But it just so happens, Sam, and I'm very excited to tell you, that I have discovered a sports origin story that took place not far from where we're standing right now. It's a sport pretty much everybody's heard of, but you have not heard this tale, and I think it has the makings of a timeless legend. A timeless legend, like something that happened in ancient Greece, but it happened in New Hampshire. Yes. A New Hampshire legend. Yes, we are the ancient Greece of New England. Just bear with me here. (laughs) I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Pull up a chair, throw some wood on the fire pit, and sit back, because Taylor is going to do some myth-making. You decide just how timeless it really is. So, this story begins in the 1970s, and it's a story about two men, two dueling philosophies, and an argument. He's
4: just one of the most competitive people I've ever known. He's a, he's a, uh, a jock. Charles is sort of a workout freak when I, I loved working out, too. I was running in Central Park.
2: On one side was author, bodybuilder, and all-around outdoorsman Charles Gaines. I love to fish and hunt and canoe. He's got a rugged Robert Redford look. And is best known as the author of Pumping Iron. That's the book and subsequent documentary that made Arnold Schwarzenegger a household name.
0: The greatest feeling you can get in a gym, or the most satisfying feeling you can get in the gym, is the pump.
2: On the other side of the argument was Hayes Knoll, a New York stockbroker and former college football star.
4: Uh, 76 years old, born in 1941. Charles and
2: Hayes were best friends and constant rivals. They played tennis, fished, and skied. A friend later joked that the pair could bet over the length of a dog or the number of bricks in a fireplace.
0: You have to do everything possible to win, you know, no matter what.
2: One summer in the late 70s, the two of them rented a house in Martha's Vineyard with their wives. And one night, while grilling bluefish and downing gin and tonics, they picked up on a long-standing argument about the nature of survival. It was a third beer debate that had been raging for some time now, and it had to do with who was better suited to survive in the wilderness, in a predator-prey sort of situation. Hayes thought his experiences in the high-stakes arena of the New York Stock Exchange made him an ideal survivor.
4: He thrived on adrenaline and was unafraid to take risks. The skills that it takes to survive are transportable across all environments, whether it's outdoors, indoors, stock exchange.
5: In other words, you could take that same uh, survival instinct that you practiced in New York and you could move it to the tundra of Alaska or the uh, savannas of Kenya
4: and and, uh, make out just as well. I can survive in any jungle. So I can survive in the Wall Street jungle, I can survive in any jungle.
2: The idea that the New York Stock Exchange com- like prepares you to hunt a wildebeest in Africa is insane. Well, I know whose side you would be on then. <laughs> you would be on the side of the bodybuilder who said, that's crazy.
5: There's a great song by Hank Williams Jr. called A Country Boy Will Survive. We know about uh, rifles and uh, shadows and how to find moss on a tree and how to make a fire when you don't have any matches. It's just the idea. That you could take city skills and transfer them into that sort of environment is typical of the kind of hubris that (laughs) a lot of my city friends have.
2: The two drank and argued into the night, but because it was something of a hypothetical pissing contest, there was never any way to take it further than words. That was until a few weeks later, when a friend sent Charles a catalog featuring a very unique piece of equipment.
5: It was a single-shot, CO2-cartridge-powered gun, pistol, that shot uh, paint-based pellets.
2: It was the Nelspot 007, the world's first paintball gun. It had actually been invented more than a decade earlier for use by foresters to mark trees on difficult terrain and farmers to mark bred livestock. Charles was living in New Hampshire at the time, writing and teaching at New England College in Henniker. He ordered a couple of pistols, then invited Hayes up to see his new toys.
5: And I said, we're going to settle this one way or another. You say you can survive in the woods in New Hampshire as well as I can. We'll see about that, big boy. Come on up here.
2: But first, they had
4: to test the equipment. So we did an old-fashioned duel. We wrapped towels around our waist. and We uh, just uh, took paces, turned around, and fired. And... And uh, I missed him, and he hit me right in the butt. butt. And he leapt a little bit. But we sort of knew this was something we could use.
2: The guns were slow and not
5: particularly accurate. Occasionally, the uh, pellets would <laughs> would blow up in the
4: barrel. But they would do. Uh, Charles had a little field that was all brushy. and I said, why don't we go out and hunt each other in this field? I knew where it was almost the whole time from the get-go.
5: Um, and I came up behind him, he was sitting down, getting his breath behind a tree, and uh, I didn't have the heart to shoot him, so I just put the gun up to his head and said, okay, who wins, right?
3: Why are men so insane? I'm so sorry, (laughs) this whole time I've just been thinking, like, men! (laughs) (laughs) The (laughs) patriarch. tell!
5: (laughs) And uh, I didn't have the heart to shoot him, so I just put the gun up to his head and said, okay, Who wins?
2: Now this is what you'd expect in a parable, right? The prideful and obviously wrong city slicker loses out to the woodsy folklore of the country boy. But of course, if this is an allegory, the lesson has to be repeated if you want it to stick. In Hayes' mind, the stockbroker, nothing was really settled. There hadn't been any rules. Charles was playing on his own property. It really ought to be best three out of five. You get the idea. By this time, a third friend had joined the debate, a local ski shop manager named Bob Guernsey. Guernsey is another um, tremendously competitive man. And over the next few months, the three of them started to plan a grand experiment. A 12-person game that combined paintball guns and capture the flag and would span across 100 acres of New Hampshire forest. They called it the survival game. They came up with the rules, arranged for referees, And finally, sent out invitations to friends who were just as competitive, just as successful, and just as crazy as they were.
5: We had a guy who was the best turkey
2: hunter in the state of Alabama.
5: We had a a wild elk hunter, Green Beret lieutenant. We had a venture capitalist from New York. We had a surgeon. We had a movie producer.
2: On the side of the city slickers was Joe Drinan, a stockbroker and amateur boxer. It was friendly competition, but believe me, it was fierce
4: competition. I mean, except for me. (laughs) I I went in a... Not really knowing why I was going in, it, to tell you the truth.
2: On the side of the country boys was Richie White, a licensed forester who still has his Nelspot 007.
4: So this tube on the top would hold the ball, so you would load that right up with the balls. And,
2: and Charles wasn't the only writer in the group either. In fact, there were three of them, including a staff writer for Sports Illustrated.
5: I mean, a lot of these guys brought their wives. Some of them brought their children. We must have had a total of 50 people.
2: People like Joe's wife, Anne. I looked at this equipment and I thought, I don't believe this. It's like a bunch of five-year-olds going out in the woods and just having fun. It was going to be a spectacle, but it was also going to be very organized. Along with the invitations, Charles and company had sent along eight pages of rules. The players would be spread out around the perimeter of some 100 acres of land. Each one would be equipped with a pair of
5: goggles. One of the nail spot pistols.
2: A few handfuls of pellets. I think it was 12 or maybe 20 pellets. A compass. And a map. Inside the forest would be four flag stations. Nothing flashy, just 12 colored flags hanging from a branch.
5: White, green, blue, and red. And the point was to get one of each of the flags from each of the flag stations and be the first one out at the exit point,
2: which was also marked on
5: the on the map.
2: Players, of course, could eliminate each other at any point using the pistols. But
5: to be shot, to be officially put out of the game, you had to have paint on your
3: clothes. Extremely hunger games. You know what I'm thinking though is the Tri tournament.
1: Or like that. <laughs> That's what I've been thinking this whole time. I was thinking like Clue, like the Green Beret, the Venture Capitalist, Miss <laughs> yeah. <Ms>. Scarlet. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the night before the game was scheduled to take place, everybody gathered at a local restaurant. The bodybuilder had rented out a private dining room.
5: We had toasts and uh, wagers. Oh,
2: yes, there was the Calcutta the night before. That's right. Everybody bet on different people. I mean, that's when everyone was bragging about how they're going to win and why they're going to win. People were shouting across the room, debating the same argument about survival skills that had spawned the game in the first place. And, of course,
5: everybody had their own opinion on
2: it. In spite of his own argument, the stockbroker was a shrewd investor. He put his money on the Green Beret
4: that he had been a long-range reconnaissance patrol leader in Vietnam. In my opinion, that was going to put him as the number one seed. And then the floor trader or the stock floor trader come back and say, hey, you've never been in the pits trading stocks. You don't know what pressure's all about. Uh, I'll show you kind of thing. The
2: forester was maybe the least braggadocious of the group. The surgeon was a wild card. The amateur boxing stockbroker was banking on a strategy of patience, he said. And the Alabama turkey hunter had openly abandoned the contest in favor of a more singular mission. He said, Gaines, I have one
5: ambition in this game, and that's to put your ass out.
2: (laughs) Eventually, the night came to an end. Everybody went back to motels and couches and backyard tents and fell into a deep slumber. And the next morning, on June 27, 1981, the 12 contestants assembled in the bodybuilder's backyard.
3: You know, there's a camouflage going on the faces, they've got the clothing, they've got the, you know, p- some people are talking, some people are not, and I'm going, whoa, this is, this is pretty competitive.
2: They drove out into the woods of Henniker, where a friend and impartial judge had mapped out the 100 acres where they'd be playing. It was a hot, sunny morning, but inside the forest, it was dark and dappled and perfect for paintball. At 10 a.m., the referees placed the contestants around the edge of the forest, out of sight from one another, and at the sound of a bullhorn, the game began.
0: You have to do everything possible to win, you know, no matter what.
4: It became every little twig. Twig that snapped or every little bird, everything, every breeze, every branch. was maybe somebody, going, and it was just what kept the thing so exciting. According to the Sports Illustrated article that came out months
2: later, the amateur boxer-slash-stockbroker was the first one out of the game. I think it said that you lost your compass, or you lost your map, or you... I, don't know, I, I lost, lost my lost, way.
4: You lost, <laughs> lost one of the two. The
2: other stockbroker, the one that started the argument with the bodybuilder, he planned to outrun his
4: opponents. My strategy was, I thought, a great strategy. I was in great shape. He knew
2: the guns weren't very accurate, so he thought he'd sprint to each flag station. Grab the flag, then sprint back out to the perimeter.
4: Then the entire time I, I would have to run around the whole thing, but I would never have to worry about being shot by anybody on one side. Run in, grab, run out, repeat.
2: I think this is a good strategy. I it's, like this guy.
4: It's not a bad strategy. I was. You, you didn't, didn't
2: like him before? No, but is <laughs> it the same stockbroker? Yes. Same one. <laughs> oh, no, I was
3: going to say, I'm still on the Hunger Games, and I think that's a rookie mistake. I just think that you're walking into a trap if you go straight for the flags.
2: Meanwhile, the forester, Richie, he took the tried-and-true, still-hunting approach that he used when stalking deer. Doing that, you hear someone else before they hear you, unless it's another person <laughs> doing the same the same process.
5: How people played the game reflected who they were.
0: Every little twig that snapped, do everything possible to win, you know, no, matter what. no matter, what, matter what. The
2: yellow flag station was tucked into a valley, bisected by a small brook. Blood Alley, they called it later, because of the carnage that happened there. A short distance away, the Sports Illustrated writer crouched silently. He fired a shot at the ski instructor who had no idea he was there, but missed. The movie producer shot the deer hunter-slash-realtor. The trauma surgeon shot the Sports Illustrated writer. The bodybuilder hadn't seen anyone yet. He got one flag. I didn't see anybody. Two flags. I didn't hear anybody. But then ran into the top seated combatant. the group. He had been a long-range reconnaissance patrol leader in Vietnam. The Green Beret. They both fired and missed, then ran for cover, the Green Beret taking shelter in an old solitary shed that was propped up among the trees like a witch's lair.
5: We were shooting each other. I was shooting at him through the window. He was shooting me out the window. I was trying to circle around behind. And all of a sudden, I see this thing coming through the air, and it lands right at my feet. (laughs) It's a potato. And Tony says, grenade.
1: Where did the potato come from? (laughs) Why was there a potato?
2: (laughs) It was a joke, of course. And the two, after some time, decided to walk away in a truce. But the commotion had attracted another enemy, the Alabama turkey hunter. He shot me and the pellet didn't break. The bodybuilder was still paint-free, and he had his nemesis dead to rights. But then the turkey hunter reached into a pocket, pulled out a paintball, and burst it with his thumb. He reached forward and marked the bodybuilder on the chest, who was standing there in shock. They were both out. So
5: that was my waterloo.
2: Throughout all this struggle, the trauma surgeon had been earning the nickname the Death Doctor. He took Hayes, our sprinting stockbroker, out of the game, and four other people and later said the experience was incredibly cathartic.
3: That is so dark. <laughs>
1: that's crazy. Very concerned about <laughs> this that. man. Yeah. As, a trauma,
2: as a trauma surgeon, isn't this someone who probably, presumably, has dealt with many gunshot wounds in his life? You would think, but maybe thats he's just on the other side of this. Maybe, maybe it's, it feels good. I don't know. And meanwhile, Richie, the forester, quietly made his way through the woods. Ghosted through...
5: The whole field picked up all four flags.
2: I don't think he even fired anything.
4: The whole game. I, I can't say that Richie White didn't take risks. He just avoided confrontation. Do you remember when you, when you got out with the flags? Did you
2: know what had happened?
4: No, because it was uh, over two hours. You know, I
2: just said, well, who's, you know, who's, who's ahead? I mean, who, who won? And they said, well, no one else is out. Clearly, the the woods skills uh, were the prevailing skills, you know, in the game. Again, the parable delivers its message. But this time, this time it feels stronger. Because it wasn't Charles, the bodybuilder, the renaissance man who bested his friend. It was a real country boy, a quiet, competent forester that showed everybody up. But my favorite thing about this parable, and about most sports parables, I think, is that it's infinitely repeatable. It's not enough to simply hear the story and know the outcome. You have to prove it for yourself. Only you get to be the country boy, or the city slicker, or the trauma surgeon, or the forester. You get to play and see if the lesson still sticks. And imagine yourself as part of the legend. So that's the story yeah. of ball. That was Good job. Cool But... Legends like the First Marathon have the benefit of being ancient history. The first game of paintball happened less than 40 years ago, and the myth-making process is a little squishy. Um, There's something that I kind of want to go back to uh, the Pheidippides conversation and just ask a rhetorical question of the group, which is, does it matter if the story of, for example, the First Marathon is true? Do the details and their authenticity matter? I don't think so. I, I would prefer if it was true. Is this, is this story all bullshit? Did you just make this up? Well.
3: Does it matter if he did?
2: <laughs> I just, yeah, I want to know. Would that change your opinion of this allegorical tale of the first game of paintball if I told you that some of what I just said is a version of a story, yes. You would feel betrayed if yeah, that I was. I would good. feel betrayed. <laughs> when we come back, mythmakers often have an agenda, and Taylor picks apart the true story of paintball, or the closest thing he could come to finding it. Stick around.
1: Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new.
2: My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory.
4: It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness, really, I found transformative.
1: Or... A story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to Hmm. eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't (laughs) eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Laleh Aracoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel. Wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: Welcome back. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. This is Outside In. And today we're talking about the legend of paintball with producer Taylor Quimby, who just before the break let us know that not everything he told us may have been true. And you actually pointed back to the very beginning to the story of Pheidippides, which you also indicated may not be true. That is correct, that it is not true. Uh, so so the first account of Pheidippides was written by Herodotus, who's kind of the famous historian who wrote all about the Greco-Persian Wars. And he wrote this about 40, 50 years after uh, this battle at Marathon between Athens and Persia. And he told a completely different story about Pheidippides the runner being sent to Sparta, which was 150 miles away, uh, in order to enlist their help for the war. They weren't going to join the fight because they have the tradition that says that they won't fight until the full moon. So, no go. And he runs back to Athens. Uh, and it's kind of an anticlimactic story. You know, it doesn't have the same myth-making legend. Much more running, though. Much more running. I mean, it's super impressive from that standpoint. But, but a very different story and much more of a history. Now, 400 years later, there's another historian named Plutarch who writes this tale about a runner who runs after the battle, goes to Athens, and then falls down dead. But he has a completely different name. And then a third writer some years later, like another century after this, writes this sort of combined story where a character named Philippides is now the one who runs back to Athens and falls down dead. But all the historians say that 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 whole story didn't happen. And in fact, the entire Athenian army marched back to Athens immediately after the battle. Sounds like historians back in ancient Greece weren't really historians very much. They were just sort of people who wrote things on paper. Well, they, they made it epic. I think, I think the god Pan shows up in the Herodotus tale. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much you can take it at its word. So, can we bring this back to paintball? Oh, yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know first, whose version of the story did you just tell us? So the version of the story I just told you was my favorite version of the story and it came from the bodybuilder who was a novelist and a storyteller and he told the best story out of all the people I talked to. We're far enough away now that like a lot of people just don't remember certain details and I think from a journalistic standpoint some of those you know that that happens we're talking about things that happened decades ago and that's okay. Then there's other things where there are small discrepancies. And that can happen too. And you can just acknowledge that that happened. And then there are bigger discrepancies that I don't quite know what to do with. I know which version of the story I like best. And that's the one I just told you. So let's talk about some of the problems. On the very minor scale, is it a potato or is it an onion that was thrown as the grenade?
3: That is, that, that's going to bother me. And either way, what was it doing in the
2: dilapidated shack?
3: We may never know. The
2: bodybuilder, he said it was a potato. It's a potato. And Tony says, grenade! There was a written account that was written by the Green Beret himself, not long after the game, who says it was an onion. The test where they did the duel.
4: I missed him and he hit me right in, in the butt? butt.
2: They both told me that story, word for word, exactly the same but in one of the written accounts that I read, they tested the gun on the bodybuilder's teenage son, Shelby, instead. (laughs) Which I can see why maybe they changed.
1: (laughs) It, It is true that like if something is too word for word, that's like pretty suspicious if yeah. they, they're both saying the exact same thing.
5: It stung a little bit. It stings, but it's not that bad, it's like a bee sting.
2: Charles Gaines, the bodybuilder, told me that he was the, the first to win the stalking test in his backyard where they walked through the tall grass and he slowly came up on him and he put the gun to the back of his head and he didn't even have to fire, he just said you're done.
5: It was a pretty simple,
2: straightforward test, um, which I won. The stockbroker, he told me the exact same story but he won. It was (laughs) the exact same story. (laughs) What? The truth is, my version is a true version. His
5: memory about losing is not all that great.
3: Yeah. History is written by the
2: victors, right? Yeah, the hare beat the tortoise.
1: (laughs) One of those guys knows the other is a damn liar.
2: Well, they're both in their 70s. Yeah, they're both in their 70s. Do you you think
1: that they both believe their version of the story?
2: They both laughed about it to me. They, they both had a good laugh.
5: If there are any irreconcilable
2: differences in his story and mine, call me back. <laughs> and there was a part of me that wondered if they're having a laugh at my expense. There was a part of me that wondered when I started to capture some of these discrepancies, whether or not whole sections of this story are fabricated for the purpose of telling a great story. Which is hard because I cannot deny that it is a great story.
3: Yeah, but it's kind of annoying because we came all this way and we had all these feelings. And then (laughs) now you're like, no, just kidding.
2: Have you played the survival game? It's awesome. A lot of the discrepancies I found come down to a central problem with the bodybuilder's narrative. He is a great storyteller just looking to tell a great story.
5: We had no idea it was going to take off, let alone make us any money, and we didn't do it for that reason.
2: But when you dig into the history of this legend, it's clear that there was an alternate motive, that there was a reason this story had to be so good. And Hayes in particular wasn't in it just to spin a good yarn. What's his name, the other guy? Hayes.
3: Hayes. He was the one, didn't he take it to the next yes, level? Yes, he, he made a business. He him. was looking at this at a very different angle, and I remember that.
4: We were going to do something with this. I mean, you know, we were going to make something out of it start a company. Survival Game, an adult version of Capture the Flag. Two equal teams that begin at opposite ends of a playing field. Object, I should say,
2: there is no question as to whether or not the game actually took place. The parable narrative is fuzzy, but a lot of the facts are crystal clear. And that's partially because you've got multiple first-hand accounts. Stories about the first annual survival game were published in Sports Illustrated, Outside Magazine, and Sports Afield, which is exactly what Charles, the bodybuilder, Hayes, the stockbroker, and Bob Guernsey, the ski guy, needed in order to start their company, which they called the National Survival Game. Or NSG.
5: I took it on the Today Show, the Good Morning America show, the Phil Donahue show,
2: um, on and on and on. They sold starter kits by mail, a cardboard box with a gun, pellets, a compass, and directions on how to play. They set up their first paintball field in New London, New Hampshire, and they started franchising fields across the country and overseas. They even landed an exclusive deal with Nelson Paints so that they could monopolize the market on paintball guns.
4: I want to say we sold 10,000 guns in the first year. Hayes Knoll had put up $20,000 to start the
2: business. Within six months, he'd made his investment back. Charles, who was never much interested in the business side of things, was the first to back out. He sold his share of the company back to Hayes and Guernsey for something in the six figures.
5: I was just tired of it. I wanted to get onto something else.
2: And not long after, things started to take a turn. The first competing businesses started popping up. A man in Texas
4: sued NSG after allegedly shooting his eye out. After that, more lawsuits started to roll in. And, and, and you don't even know whether they're injured or not injured. I mean, you know, it's really, it became a nightmare. That that part of it became a nightmare. I don't think that's the only reason, but it put a real kinker in the, in the company. And there were other reasons. Competition for pistols and fields.
2: Problems with the oil-based paints that the paintballs used. Paintball was taking off, but NSG, the company that launched it all wasn't in the cockpit.
4: We just fell behind in the technology race, way behind.
2: Hayes was next to get out of the business. He sold off his share to Bob Guernsey, who kept it going as long as he could. But in 1995, he filed for bankruptcy.
4: I never spoke to him after that.
2: NSG had been sued more than 100 times in less than 15 years. Bob died a few years ago, so I wasn't able to get his side of the story. But from what I can tell, he never forgave the other two for how things wound up. Paintball has changed a lot since the 1980s. An arms race for faster, more powerful paintball guns took the sport out of the woods and into a different urban setting. Small fields with lots of little obstacles, shorter times, and tactical teams that don't need to know anything about moss or shadows or topography. It's a setting where the stockbrokers might actually have an advantage after all. They say that history is written by the winner. But when it comes to myths like this one, What if winners and losers have less to do with it than we thought? What if history is written by the people who come later? The storytellers who decide which details make for a better fireside tale? Or the marketing guy who writes the About Us page on the company website? If you read the paintball websites and forums, Bob Guernsey, the ski instructor, he gets a lot of the credit for the first game. If you read the sports magazines, it's Charles and Hayes. Either way, this history, it's still being worked out. Well, so I guess my question is, is so if we're still at the moment where we decide whether this becomes a myth or not, what should the story be? You know, what is the lesson that we should draw from the first game of paintball?
1: I think there, there might be something to, like you know every every time you remember something you're you're getting more distant from the event itself like when you whenever you look at a photograph you're remembering the photograph more than you are the actual event
3: like i think a lot about like how we'll write the history books about like this time in history or like the time that we experience like what that will look like in the textbooks of the future or whatever and like all of like you use the phrase myth making you know it's just a way of understanding our own lives and our connections to the past and to each other but I, I I do feel let down by i I do feel like capitalism has corrupted your story <laughs> somewhat, and you know, I liked it when it was, and I do still like the element of it that is an origin a sort of natural myth, yeah. you know
2: If you look at the marathon model, which is not obviously a good model for for what this is, but it it took five hundred years before the very false but much more entertaining story about the marathon guy running to Athens and then falling down dead. It took 500 years before that got put on the record. And if you think about 50 years have passed, okay, we're still in this messy phase. 450 years from now, what story will be told? And my guess is it will be a very neat, very lovely myth that isn't entirely true.
1: Is that what you're going to get to?
2: That I'm the Herodotus of paintball? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: I wish. Put that in your Twitter bio.
2: Today's episode was produced by Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown. Our staff includes Jimmy Gutierrez, Justine Paradise, and Hannah McCarthy. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray would rather play Coob than Paintball. Special thanks to Justine, Lauren Chuljan, Annie Ropeek, Robert Garova, and... Sam's son Hugo for playing the role of our peanut gallery during the fireside storytelling session. Also thanks to Steve Davidson and Elizabeth Muzzy who appeared in a different version of the story and helped Taylor with some of his research. You will find some pictures from the first annual survival game thank goodness there was a photographer there to capture this legend Uh, as well as a link to the original Sports Illustrated story titled Bang Gotcha You're Dead at OutsideInRadio.org. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
0: Franco is pretty smart, but Franco is a child, and when it comes to the day of the contest, I'm his father. He comes to me for advices.